Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's dive into the news. First up, Elixir 1.13.1 was released. So this is just a minor point release. It's really just bug fixes and seem to be all around edge cases. So I didn't notice any security updates or anything like that. So there's no reason to rush out and get it. But if you're already going to be updating to 1.13 and you haven't yet, obviously you'll just jump to this one. And the only reason you might need to jump sooner would be if you were hitting some of those edge cases. One particular change of note is that the URI module had previously deprecated the parse function. With this update, they rolled that back. So they undid the deprecation because the replacement was too aggressive and wasn't a good drop-in replacement for it. Next up, a very alpha release of a CMS called Beacon CMS was announced by Dockyard. I don't know why, but I just get really excited when people release CMSs. I don't really use them. I feel like I should. But every time I see one, I'm like, oh, this is exciting. I should go try it out. <laughs> I love them for just building quick sites. You know, the CMS gets you up and started really quickly. And like agencies love this stuff. It's like candy to them. I kind of looked into it and something that Mike Benz on Twitter said is the magic is that after creating or editing a page through the page editor, it's rendered into a Heeks template and compiled slash loaded into the running Phoenix application, allowing it to render as fast as if you had written it in Heeks originally. The proof of concept here is that they're actually making these editable templates that you would regularly edit dynamically. They compile and load right into your Phoenix running application as if you had written the code originally. So that's an interesting concept. I know it's early, but I'm curious about how they would handle like someone making like 5,000 edits on a page. Does that mean you have 5,000 versions of this module that's loaded and only like the latest one would be? I wonder if there's like a, a cleanup process that's going along. It's very alpha. I bet there's not anything like that right now, but... I'm <laughs> <laughs> just curious. Like that would be a pretty cool thing to work on. I'm happy they're working on this. This is uh, this sounds really interesting. Sounds like it's just a proof of concept of, can we make it do this? Yeah. And then the separate follow-up question would be, is this a good idea? I saw that they're going to replace Dockyard's Ember-powered site with this. Oh, nice. At least for one website, it'll be in production, it sounds like. That's the plan anyway. That's really cool because I know just in general, in the Elixir community, a lot of people are saying things like, oh, we really need a CMS. You know, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I know people say it. And so having something there that people can say, oh, well, you can take this as a starting off point could be interesting. So if you're interested in taking a look at it, you know, it's there. Check it out. I'm probably one of those people. I need a CMS. I don't know why, but I sure need it. Uh, I'm having flashbacks of active admin. Steve Bussey, the author of Real-Time Phoenix, has released a Notion renderer for Phoenix. It's still super early. So don't get too excited about this one yet. In case you haven't heard of Notion, Notion is a note-taking software and project management software that is used for note-taking, task management, project management, knowledge management. That's pretty much it. It's knowledge management. So David, what is a Notion renderer? So that's what Notion is. And to have all of this knowledge in Notion, Notion will render it for you on their own site. And so they have a public API. So you can pull down that content via like JSON in the form of blocks. And so this is where this Notion renderer comes in. You have this API that you can pull down this JSON blob on and you want to render it yourself. Maybe add your own styling, add a link rewriter or something like that. And now you can do that with Steve Bussey's tool, Notion Render. Still super early, but that's the idea. So Notion as knowledge management has a public API. You can pull down their content from here and re-render it, modify it slightly, maybe restyle it slightly, maybe, and then render it yourself. So that's the cool part about it. Maybe you want to just pull that into Beacon CMS and have a, some <laughs> CMS pages of they're pulling directly from Notion. Yes. Might be something to it. Notion can be your backend for editing your stuff, and then you can just have something that uh, just renders it in your way. And next up, just some updates on Zig. So Zig 0.9.0 was released. Zig is a general purpose programming language and tool chain for maintaining robust, optimal, and reusable software. So one of the big things about Zig is that it's really cross-platform friendly. And so why is this important for Elixir? Well, there is a library that we've talked about a numerous times called Ziggler. 
that is that bridge for Elixir to Zig code. And you're actually able to embed Zig code directly into your Elixir applications and they become NIFs, which is really powerful. Wojtek Mach gave some context to what this release meant, saying, this is huge news. Zig can now create Erlang and Elixir NIFs and cross-compile them to all major OSs. And then you might ask, well, Rust can cross-compile too, right? It can do that for Rust code, but Zig can cross-compile both Zig and C and C++ code. Let that sink in for a minute. That's the end of Wojtek's little quote. And I'm not really sure yet where this might all lead, but it's a very interesting idea because I also noticed that with this Zig update, it means that Zig can compile native Node.js modules. So if you have something that has some C code and it's Node.js, then Zig is able to actually do the compilation. So that makes it just that much more friendly to being cross-platform. Very interesting. Nothing concrete to say. Here's something you can use right now, but just something to keep an eye on. Next up, some NERVs updates. All official NERV systems have been updated to Erlang OTP 24.2, BuildRoot 2021.11, and GCC 10.3. They said in their tweet that Raspberry Pi has many low-level updates, including a new built-in Wi-Fi firmware. I like me some Wi-Fi, so that sounds nice. They also have a backup download site to help mitigate GitHub and other outages that hit them last month. This is also the first release to have a change needed by some NX Axon users, a GCC option update required by TorchX. Be sure to review the release notes when upgrading. I had already forgotten about the GitHub outage. <laughs> it was overshadowed by the multiple AWS outages. <laughs> I completely forgot about GitHub. Oh, I know. And my kids reminded me yesterday about the previous big Roblox outage. It's like, oh yeah, totally forgotten about that. AWS overshadowed everything. Yikes. All right, last thing. GRISP2, while we're talking about embedded hardware and software solutions, GRISP2 boards had a Kickstarter update. In case you don't remember what GRISP2 is, it's a specially designed hardware for embedded Erlang and Elixir. It's a little bit more specialized than Raspberry Pi, right? Raspberry Pis are much more generalized. GRISP is designed for, specifically, Elixir and Erlang to be embedded into it. So that's what GRISP is. So they had an update on December 26th. They said that the blue loader, the firmware, and certificate infrastructure was finalized and the project marches forward. So if you've pre-ordered one, make sure to check out the update as your address needs to be on file for where they need to start shipping these things. When they start asking for addresses, I get excited. That means it's I'm about to get it. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by two special guests. We have Digit and Quinn. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm excited. This is cool because you guys have worked on something called Burrito. And this is a really interesting project. When I saw this, it took me a little bit of time to get it. And once I kind of figured out where this came from, it's like, wow, that, that's cool. People will really get a lot of value out of understanding what it is that you've both been working on. So I'm really excited to talk about that because it's, you know, it comes from this idea of bakeware and wrapping up Elixir into a single binary and being able to run, but even including NIFs with Zig. And it's like, wow, this is some cool stuff. I'm thrilled about it. But before we get into all of that, I would love to hear more about you. So maybe you can tell us where you live and what kind of work you're doing. I'm Quinn. I am currently living in the Bay Area, and I'm working at a company called Synopsys. I'm there with Digit, and we build automated security scanning software. Prior to that, though, I'm actually from Canada, and I spent most of my life in Ontario, just outside Toronto. I've been in the States for about a decade now. I currently am residing in the Pacific Northwest. I'm in the Seattle area. I used to live down in the Bay Area, working with Quinn. And then before that, I was actually living on the East Coast for most of my life in Connecticut, around the New Haven area. It's kind of where I originated from. I made a long trek over after I finished college. And Quinn, I know you recently presented a keynote presentation at an online conference, and that was about the history of telephony and Erlang, which I enjoyed watching that. That was really cool. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, that was, uh, that was for Codebeam in America, and it was a talk called 100 Years of Erlang. And kind of the idea was that I wanted to explore where Erlang might go over the next century by looking at where it came from in the last. 
What I loved about that is just the perspective of where it came from and the idea of how the telephone switches evolved. That's the history of Erlang and having to deal with that situation and those those things. So that was very, very helpful for understanding where we are today. Thank you. Honestly, that was a whole bunch of information I had never encountered before, but in all of my research about Erlang, everything just kept coming back to how telephones worked and what unique problems they faced when building telephones. And I just found myself spending months going down this history rabbit hole that was not at all in my original plans, but I'm really happy with how it came together. It was an amazing keynote. In my opinion, some of the best keynotes and some of the best talks are journeys, and your keynote was like a heck of a journey. It was it was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I love hearing about the uh, the socio part of, you know, not so much the technical. We get a lot of technical information at, at conferences like this, but this was socio-technical, you know, in the sense of like, people just didn't trust the telephone system. And for like personal reasons, like they, they got into these conspiracy theory kind of things, like they're out to get me kind of stuff. When I heard that part of your of your talk, I was like, oh, wow, we really haven't gone that far from that. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's something I kept coming back to in my research. Uh, I didn't get to talk about all of this because there was only a 40-minute talk, but at one point, I was spending a lot of time looking at old newspaper clippings from the 1800s, and I talked about Stroger and his electromagnetic switch. But when he opened the first electromagnetic telephone switching company, I did a search for what the newspapers at the time were saying, and I was finding clipping after clipping of people essentially being terrified of these switches taking away all of their jobs and leaving everyone in the country unemployed. <laughs> and I feel like there is at least a dozen stories where I could have changed the words Joger to Uber or Google or anything else, and it would not have felt out of place today. <laughs> History is so cyclical. Wow. <laughs> we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Dear listener, if you haven't already seen it, it's definitely something worth checking out. But I wanted to talk with you both about Burrito. So maybe you can first tell us kind of an introduction to what Burrito is. Burrito is, in short, a way to take an Elixir application and package it up as a single binary that you can run on whatever platform you want to target. Being able to actually produce those binaries for every platform on every platform. That's basically the goal of Burrito, is, is a cross-platform distribution solution for Elixir applications. No one takes on a goal like that without a reason, right? <laughs> so there has to be a really good reason to say, yes, this is this is what we want to do. So you share a little bit about that on the GitHub page, and I'd love to hear why this was important. At Synopsys, we have this requirement to ship our scanning engine, which is entirely written in Elixir. And we basically need to let it be run as a command line tool on not only machines that have Erlang installed, but machines that won't have Erlang installed or machines that can't have Erlang installed. It could be a an air-gapped Windows virtual machine that a consultant is given access to. They need to be able to run our Elixir code on that VM with no permissions, with no internet access, nothing. We have the most airtight environments and we needed a bulletproof solution to ship our code out to these environments and run it reliably and run it in a way that's just super portable, uses the least amount of permissions and basically installs nothing on the host system in terms of like actually installing to the system libraries. I know you said that it seems like a really ambitious goal and it is, but it's really a natural evolution of what we were doing before. Over the past couple of years, like I said earlier, we have been building these automated security scanning tools and the way we've been deploying those to people is as air-gapped appliances, essentially. We've dealt with customers in healthcare and government and finance and so on who are not able to use a SaaS service, especially one that's providing security. And so we were typically shipping them VM images that they could run inside vSphere or ESXi and things like that. And we had a lot of success with that. But over time, we were finding that there's also this other niche that we weren't serving, and that was consultants and pen testers. These are people who aren't necessarily looking to run an entire cluster locally within their network, but they would still like to have access to the sorts of security tools that we were building to use on pen testing engagements that they were involved in. So essentially what we did here, like Digit said, is it's drafted all of these analysis capabilities we were building out of what was at the time a Phoenix app and into a standalone library 
that we were able to package up as a command line interface so that they'd be able to run that in the field, again, in these AirDapt machines with locked down permissions that may not even have Docker or Elixir or even WSL available to them. And that's been a very fun challenge. But I think uh, going back even further than that, this is something that Digit and I have wanted for a very long time. We are massive fans of Elixir. And for years, we have talked about how we wished we could use Elixir for everything. We've always wanted to build all of our shell scripts and our command line tools and so on using Elixir. But it just didn't feel like there's a great story for that. Correct me if I'm wrong, Digit, but I feel like for years now, this has kind of been a goal of yours to enable running Elixir in as many places as possible to facilitate this sort of use. Yeah, it kind of comes back to a, a personal feeling that I got when I first started using Elixir, which was rediscovering the joy of programming <laughs> is, is really what Elixir introduced me to again, which was great. And I wanted to be able to experience that in as many places as possible. For example, usually my go-to one-off scripting language, if I'm writing uh, something that's more complicated than a shell script or is something that's not fully like application-based, I would use a Python script. I'd fire up idle, really, if I really wanted to get it done dirty. I would just, you know, get a Python script going. But I really, really liked Elixir and the, the, the amount of libraries that mix in like the hex package repository has like JSON is a powerful JSON library. And I wanted all that just available to me at my shell, but it's really hard to get that to happen. Prior to mix install existing, I worked on a little project called Teex, T-E-E-X. It injected mix dependencies. It would download them and cache them, and then it would inject them. That eventually, I, that got sourced as a reference on the mailing list of as a reason to have mix install included into Elixir. And I was really happy to see mix install land. I use it all the time. I use it to write one-off scripts every day, and it's the best. <laughs> when I first met, met Digit a couple of years ago, we were talking, and I think Digit said, I wish I could use Elixir everywhere that I use Python. I feel like this is a step in that direction. Yeah, exactly. And so now I can just write a script and run it like a Python script and have all of the mix libraries available to me and just all of the joys of the beam are available in one command at my shell. And that kind of experience is what I want to see more of in Elixir. And I think there are a lot of other folks who are trying to drive towards that vision as well. I think that really is a, a helpful thing to happen just for adoption, right? Just lowers the barrier for people to be able to play with it. That's important. Exactly. Because otherwise you would usually have to spin up an entire mix project. And that comes with the burden of learning what a mix project is, which you know is straightforward, but is, again, is a barrier to entry. And just having no friction and being able to hit the ground running and install a library and use it is a really nice experience for a first-time user. And I think this is a problem that a couple of different people have been trying to tackle in different directions. On the dashboard side, we have uh, Livebook, which is essentially working on this exact problem, but trying to expose all these tools through a web interface instead. And similarly, uh, Voitech at Dashbit has been working on some projects like Beam Run, I believe, is what his tool was called that solves a very similar niche as Burrito. And uh, there's Elixir for Desktop. There's all these different groups of people who are kind of converging on this as being a valuable problem to solve. And it's cool seeing the confluence of all of that coming together. So another one that you didn't mention there was bakeware. So what is the relationship of Burrito with any of these other spiritual predecessors? When we first started to develop this command line tool, we decided maybe bakeware would be the proper solution to this distribution problem. And so I went ahead and I, I kind of headed up the, the idea of like getting this CLI tool being distributed easily while Quinn and a few other coworkers were working on kind of extracting the analysis engine out of the Phoenix app and wrapping it in a much more pleasant interface so we could extend it a little more easily. I was just focused on getting this distribution part done. I really like Bakeware. Bakeware was awesome. I remember Quinn sent me Bakeware one day and it blew my mind because it, it solved a lot of things that I really wanted to to like see and I really wanted to be able to package like my cool little Elixir applications and send them to my friends or I just I wanted to be able to do that uh, without having them to download and install it maybe you can take a moment to just explain what bakeware is in case people haven't heard of that basically solves almost the same thing as burrito where it would take your mix release and it would integrate with mix releases you just 
type it into your uh, mix EXS as a step. And then it would package it all up into almost like a tarball. And then it would compress it. And then it would embed it into a C code base. And then it would compile out a binary, which when run on the target system would extract all of that, as well as the ERTS. And it would plop that into a common directory and would execute your piled beam code. It's effectively this, a similar process to how Burrito works. Bakeware was done during SpawnFest 2020, I believe. Yeah, a year or two ago. Yeah, yeah. It was a really awesome project. I think it won the first place for SpawnFest. And I was really impressed by it. That was um, Frank's team from Nerves. Yeah, Frank Hunleth. So the idea there with Bakeware is that the binary is packed inside of the C wrapper. And when it executes, does it leave artifacts on the system? So it kind of like has like a cache folder somewhere and then that and that's where it goes. Yeah, I believe like if you build a Linux one, it puts in a dot Bakeware folder in your home folder. And then that extracts the ERTS and the compiled beam code, which is your mix release. And then it just executes it in the background and forks off a separate process for the beam. Gotcha. Okay. And so in comparison, what does Burrito do then? Burrito does effectively (laughs) the same thing. The reason we didn't go directly with Bakeware when we were building our binary distribution platform was due to cross-platform support. This was a big thing that we really needed. If you want to build a Bakeware binary for Linux, you have to build it on Linux. If you want to build a Bakeware binary for Darwin, macOS, you have to build it on a macOS machine. There's no way to easily cross-target binary distributions. It's just, it's not doable based on how it was set up, which is fine because I really think Bakeware was instrumental in making Burrito in the first place. Burrito, instead of using C, uses this fun new language called Zig which was a language that I'd been really excited about for a while, and it was really eager to write something in, but I knew it couldn't be something too complicated. And when I thought about what we needed to get done to ship our code, I figured, well, this is mostly a lot of just file system operations and calling some very basic C code. I could probably write a bakeware in Zig. And Zig has this fantastic cross-platform support. You can target any platform from virtually any platform. You just do dash target and you can say uh, the, the triplet. So you could just say like processor, ABI, so like glibc, muscle C, whichever glibc you're using, and then the OS and you just say go and it will produce a binary that will work on that target platform. So from Mac OS, I can produce a Linux binary, a Linux binary for muscle C and a Windows executable all from the same code base. That is the reason I thought that Zig would be the perfect uh, language to write this wrapper in. And so that's the big difference between Bakeware and Burrito is Burrito takes this approach of cross-platform first, and we really wanted to focus on one build machine in our CI system could produce all the binaries for all of our target platforms. Getting more to the nitty-gritty details a little bit, with Burrito, we're also targeting uh, releases, whereas Bakeware is specifically working with EXS. And... In our case, we were spinning up entire OTP apps to do this analysis that we care about. And so we really wanted all those extra capabilities from a release. So I know that for a basic like Elixir project, you're compiling Elixir. Burrito can you know wrap that up and get the Erlang, Erlang runtime system in there. But what happens when the project depends on something else that also needs to be compiled? Like, let's say I want to use Jiffy instead. We do support compiling with NIST, though, and we do it with the, I think, wonderfully named module, the NIST sniffer, <laughs> which essentially walks the directories for any of the dependencies from your project and tries to detect different build tools that might be in place within Elixir projects. So there's support for things like Elixir make. It'll look for make files and things like that in order to initialize this NIST sniffer and try to essentially inject that build pipeline into the larger release steps for your project. And that's something that is definitely still a work in progress. This is something that we could absolutely use a lot of help with. Here, it's really a case of trying to detect as many build systems as possible and making sure that we're able to plug those into what we're already doing. So far, that's something that we've had a lot of success with, but that's really just going to come down to being a numbers game and making sure that we are able to support as many different permutations of these tools as possible. Naming is fun, right? So Burrito, it's perfect. It wraps up multiple different things. 
Niff sniffer. That's just makes me laugh. <laughs> Everybody loves burritos. So we got good feels attached to it already. Yeah. I want to come back to NIFs. Maybe you can share so people can get an idea of what kind of a NIF they could use. What's a possibility here? Like, is there an example of something like, yes, we need this other thing to be native? Just to, to point out a library that does work really well. Things that use Elixir Make, we do have support for right now. I think Ratatouille, the terminal UI library for Elixir, uses Termbox, and we actually successfully cross-compiled Termbox-based application from macOS to Linux and from Linux to macOS, uh, which was really exciting. And that essentially gives us really rich terminal-based UIs, so you can have things like panes that you can navigate with your keyboard, lists, loading bars, uh, essentially these full terminal-based UIs. Like if you've ever gone through an old Linux installation and it's guiding you through that wizard of selecting all your config options and such. Sound Blaster 16, all 32. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we have built Elixir tools like that using Ratatouille and we have shipped them amongst each other internally and it's extremely cool. <laughs> they made for a very compelling demo. It was very exciting to, to run it and then see the terminal UI pop up, knowing that that was built on a totally different machine and a, like some maybe even a totally different architecture. Along the same lines, though, uh, something that is incredibly useful that we get out of NIF is being able to call syscalls and other native code that isn't exposed through Elixir. What we're doing is a use case that Elixir isn't traditionally used for, building CLI apps. And what this means is that there isn't actually a lot of infrastructure in place to call a lot of the syscalls that you would typically use when building a rich terminal application. And so there's a lot of syscalls that we rely on to do things like check whether standard out is attached to a TTY so that we can disable animations or determine what the width and the height of the window is so we can reflow text using the inspect protocol as that changes and such. And a lot of that information is stuff that you access through syscalls. And so using Zig, it's easy for us to write little wrappers around these syscalls so we can then call from Elixir and get access to all of that native functionality that's usually fairly locked away from us. All right, so you're talking a lot about consoles, and I get that that you guys need that a lot, but I heard you say Mac OS and Linux. I didn't hear you say Windows. Where's Windows in this? Oh, Windows works. Windows works, and there was a whole process to getting that functioning. It was a nightmare. I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes. <laughs> Weeks of terror. I do not understand what is up with that operating system. Maybe it's just the legacy stuff. This is a great segue to promote more Zig. The great thing about Zig is that uh, C inter interop is just like magic and a breeze. You can just say C import and then a header file and then just add the C files to your compilation builds.zig and you're set. It will compile it into the tool chain just fine because Zig is really a big fancy front end for LLVM. So it's, it's really easy to kind of pull in C dependencies. And there are a couple pieces of C code that we had to write just to support some weird, quirky Windows stuff. Just to name a few, trying to actually turn on ANSI color support in Windows Terminal is like a whole weird thing you have to do. There's a header file specifically for this in the burrito source code. If you go and find it, you'll see. And all it does is just say, oh, are we in Windows? Okay, we have to call this like specific syscall before we boot up everything. On top of that, Windows lacks things like it doesn't actually have exec VE or it can't actually like replace the currently running process with another process image that it fakes it and just kind of like spawns a totally different process. So like we had to write around that. There are a lot of very strange things, but there is Windows support and we do actually ship Windows builds of our analysis engine and they do work and it's very exciting. I remember one very frantic day of debugging. We had shipped a new version of our tool, and this version was exciting because we had built a DSL that was essentially a query language for querying resource, resources in the domain we were working with. If you've ever used like the Kubernetes CLI or AWS or anything like that, they allow you to specify command line queries that let you filter and sort and map over the resources in AWS, for example. And we essentially built that. But it was a basically SQL-like language that you were able to pass into the app on the command line. And it worked great on Mac OS and Linux. But then we got a report from someone in the field who was trying to run it on PowerShell 5 on Windows. And it was just giving an incredibly opaque error about the command line not being parsed properly. 
So this spawned an entire day of debugging where we learned way too much about Windows quoting rules and Windows command line argument parsing. And it led to the worst hack in the burrito code base that I'm aware of, at least, uh. to do with command line parsing. <laughs> this really stems from a fundamental philosophical difference in how, <laughs> how Unix-based systems and Windows systems handle command line arguments. Within Unix, if you have a command line app, you have argv and you essentially get a list of all of the arguments that are being passed to the binary. And the parsing of that list is handled by the shell itself. But on Windows, that's not the case. On Windows, programs just get a string representing the string that was passed to the binary. And it's up to the program that is being run to handle the parsing of that string itself. So helpful. Yep. <laughs> what this means is that every Windows program implements its own parsing logic for command line strings. And that's not a security vulnerability path. Oh, gosh. Oh, I'm sure it's perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. But where this becomes especially problematic is that the command prompt, PowerShell 5 and PowerShell 7, implement different command line parsing rules. And they handle quotes differently and escape characters differently. And they are just an absolute nightmare to work with. What was happening for us with the way Burrito was working is that when someone invoked the Burrito wrapper, which was a Zig binary, that would extract the Elixir release that was inside of it, which would contain a batch file, the one that's already used by Elixir internally in order to start your release. But that would actually start another batch file, which would be responsible for actually starting the Erlang node. This meant that we were going through three to four different layers of command line parsing. And on Windows, all of those layers would have different parsing logic because some of them would be PowerShell, some of them would be command prompt. And basically, the end result was that by the time the command line string reached our application, it was gibberish and we couldn't do anything with it. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> lost motivation at this point. <laughs> it was like uh, when you're a kid, if you ever played that game like Broken Telephone, where you're passing a message between everyone, that's exactly what was happening with our application here. What we ended up with works and it's terrible and I hate it. But essentially within Zaid, where we have control over everything, we take in the command line string, we base 64 it, we pass it through all the other layers, and then once it hits burrito, we unbase 64 it. <laughs> <laughs> Clever. It was a brilliant, brilliant solution. It only happens on Windows. It's only it's a window you can see. It'll say like if Windows base 64 and go with the argv and then pass it. Good lord. What was fun there is as Quinn was recounting this horrible journey, Digit has his hands on his face and it's like, oh, this is <laughs> it was. I joined a Slack huddle to just pandemonium. Like I, it was support group. <laughs> yeah, I was. Oh, what is happening? <laughs> if I remember right, Digit joined just as another coworker of mine got so fed up that they had thrown their hands into the air, stormed out of the room, and uh, just didn't come back for like an hour. They were so angry with computers that they just needed to cool down. I have a friend who loves Windows. I should see what's up with them. Good times developing for Windows, I tell you. You guys are describing this whole process of making Elixir do something it really wasn't designed for, which is CLI interface and all of these challenges that you had to overcome along that path. But you must have felt it was worth it enough to say, we want Elixir here. So I'm just curious if you can share any of the things that you're doing with Elixir. You say you're running a full OTP app. Is this, are you doing concurrency? Like what's going on in here that you're saying it's worth it? I think that our use case here with Elixir is honestly one of the best uses of the language. We are building automated security scanning tools for web apps and APIs. And what that essentially means is that in the case of APIs, for example, we are reading in specifications of those APIs, for example, in the format of an open API specification. And then we are using that to build an in-memory model of the API based on all of the information about that API that we can infer from the specification. Then using that information, we are essentially sending oftentimes millions of requests against that API looking for security vulnerabilities and business logic bugs and authorization bypasses and crashes. We are essentially property testing your API using property tests that we have generated from the specification that you've given us. This is a fundamentally concurrent problem. We are spawning thousands of processes that are literally sending millions of requests over the span of our, one of these scans. And I simply could not imagine having as easy of a time doing this in any other language. 
when faced with the option of trying to distribute our scanner engine, we we determined we had two options. One was to rewrite the whole thing in something like Rust or Go or anything, or try to ship Elixir as a binary. And we opted to to ship Elixir as a binary. <laughs> the other possibility, which is what we've seen other competitors in the space do, is keep the analysis engine running off in the internet somewhere and make the CLI application just essentially a proxy to that service translating command line arguments into instructions to the service and then maybe setting up a reverse like MTLS tunnel that you can do all the scanning through or something so that you can still route to these internal applications that may not have internet access. But that still introduces the risk of needing to exfiltrate customer data to a service that we control. That's not something that I want to deal with. And that's also not something that many customers, especially those who are working in healthcare, finance, and government are necessarily comfortable with. Yeah. By being able to ship these tools in an air-gapped on-premise way like we do, we are able to avoid certifications and requirements that would frankly take us years and millions of dollars to pursue. And not needing to do that just gives us such a leg up over some of the other people in the space. I can totally see that where you're telling this potential client, yeah, we're just going to put a reverse shell onto your system that's going to call out and execute remote commands like on your internal network. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, it's not a very enticing offer. <laughs> and people do this and companies are sometimes okay with it because it's oftentimes one of the only options available. But Digit, myself, and many of the other people we work with aren't very satisfied with that answer. And if there's a better way to do something, we really want to spend the time to see if we can make it happen. And I think Burrito is a good example of that. This is a project that very well could have failed, but we spent a month experimenting with it. And I'm very happy with how it came out and with how many places we have it deployed right now where People are using it in environments that we never thought we'd be able to support when we started. I can see two kinds of CLI applications. So the long-running ones where it makes sense to have like a UI, you're asking interactive questions and collecting info, that kind of stuff. And Burrito, it sounds like was made to help cater to that because it allows for the full OTP installation there to boot up and all that, right? Like a normal Elixir application in my mind. But there's also the other side, another kind of CLI application, which is purely input, output, done. Does Burrito offer that kind of program? Or is that more just like a configuration of OTP? Is there anything special that Burrito has to do around that? Not at all, actually. We, We support all of those use cases with the main app that we've been shipping with Burrito. The most common uses of it actually are exactly that input, output flow that you're talking about. We have commands in place to query APIs and to look at the data that we're inferring about them. We have these long-running scans that you can start that are sending potentially millions of requests. And we even have more persistent modes. Like just recently, Digit was working on turning our application into a language server that you can leave running in the background so that Visual Studio Code, for example, can connect to this CLI. Okay, let's pause here. This sounds pretty great. This idea was more just um, we wanted to be able to expose our analysis engine, specifically our linting tools for open API specifications to Visual Studio Code. Okay. It was a hackathon we were doing internally. Me and another coworker started hacking away and basically open a open API spec and it will underline invalid parts of the specification. Like it'll say, like, you need a Boolean here, not a string, or you're missing this property, or this is an invalid reference just kind of experimenting with more of a longer running process, not just to, like you said, ask questions or input output, but can we write daemons with this? Can we write system tools with this? The answer appears to be yes, which is very exciting. Very nice. Or it's like right clicking on a path within an open API specification and clicking to scan it and then just running a scan against the path that you've clicked on. Wow. But I want to clarify, this is a language server for open API that we're talking about, not Elixir. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, basically, the experiment was seeing if we could create IDE integrations that use all these tooling pieces of tooling we've built to make working with OpenAPI easier. That's really cool. That's really cool. As you've been applying Burrito to all these different scenarios, have you come up with these ideas of ways you think other people outside of your company, because you're, you made this open source, right? That This is a major engineering investment, I feel, that 
could be a competitive advantage, you know, in your space particularly, but you're, you're sharing this. And I think that's, that's wonderful. And I applaud your efforts and the, that the company said, yes, this is valuable enough to, for us to share that, that we get some value from it as well. Thank you. We, we always really wanted to have it open source from the very start because we, we thought that it was such a useful piece of technology to offer to the community. And also the more platforms that are coming out, like now we have M1 platforms that are becoming more, more and more popular. There's probably going to be a different architecture shift at some point. I can feel it coming. ARM is coming around or something about risk. I don't know. Like we're going to have to have this community support to add more architectures and have more testing is keeping it internal really just makes it weaker because we, we won't have a larger test bed and a larger community around it. And so open sourcing it, hopefully going to secure it in the long run in terms of usability. Digit and I have always been very big proponents of open source, but it's something that the company we're at is relatively new to. So it's been a learning experience for them to see what that entails and what sorts of risk is involved in that. But like Digit just alluded to, really the way that we talked about that with them was in terms of trying to get it into as many people's hands as possible so we can make sure that it's working on all of these platforms and environments that we otherwise may not have access to. We are a security company that is building security tooling. We are not IT people working full-time on strange and obscure operating systems and platforms that we want to spend all of our time debugging and trying to get working. So any way in which we can leverage the community to expand the scope of what we're able to support is hopefully going to flow upwards into what our company is going to be able to benefit from it. I'm curious if you have any thoughts as you've gone through this process of what you think other people could do with this. Have you said, oh, it would be really good in this scenario? I'm really excited about the possibility of getting a lot more command line tooling out there in the wild that's built using Elixir. Right now, I think Rust has become kind of the emerging favorite for building new CLI tools. And they've built a lot of really exciting plumbing for doing that nicely. I think there's a lot of work to be done within the Elixir ecosystem. There's a lot of libraries that don't exist yet because no one has really needed them. But I think that especially for the sorts of things that we have been doing, these long-running concurrent workflows, and also for smaller one-off scripts, that something like Burrito could really enable a pace of development that's a lot more difficult to get with something like Rust. I'm a huge fan of Rust. I'm not speaking negatively about Rust at all here. But if I'm writing a one-off script to automate something that I do occasionally, it's a lot easier for me to do that in Elixir than it is for me to try to make the borrow checker happy. And I am hopeful that Elixir, possibly alongside Burrito, can really enable those sorts of uses that are harder to get right using Rust. Yeah, I can I can see it. You, you know, you got your open source library probably on GitHub. You got a code action that will just invoke Burrito, create a release to all three major platforms. Four, if you include ARM in there, I guess, right? And then there, you've got something that feels a lot like a lot of other popular CLI programs, an automated workflow to do that. You don't have to get a complicated CI you know, workflow to spin up a Windows machine to build this Windows version and the, and the Mac machine to do the Mac version, right? That was a huge reason for going with Zig is just that ease of cross-platform like targeting. That's also something that we're trying to make easier for the community. We have another repo within the Burrito organization on GitHub that is essentially just responsible for building OTP across a whole bunch of different versions and different platforms. And then it stores all of those as artifacts within GitHub. And that's where Burrito is pulling the different ERTS builds from. So our hope is that people using Burrito will not need to worry about any of that aspect of things themselves and can just leverage the work that we're already using internally. There is some work in progress that's hopefully going to be merged once we start back up work again after the holidays within the next week or so to support sideloading custom ERTS builds into the burrito release. That's something that we've needed internally for some of the weirder deployments that we have, such as people trying to run these CLI tools with an Alpine host that 
maybe do not have common shared libraries like term info, for example. And so there's cases where we want to build a custom ERTS build that statically links dependencies that would typically be available on the host platform, but may not be in some environments. And that's also something that we will be able to support very shortly within the tool. And and kudos to Voitech Mock about the uh, the Erlang builder there, right? Yes, yeah. It was based uh, very much on that. Voitech has been a huge help. Yeah, he's been great. Around when we started working on this, he had posted a couple of tweets that alluded to him thinking about something similar. So we all connected with each other and have bounced a lot of ideas back and forth. I think that the route that we were going down is very similar to the one that he had planned on going down. He, as far as I'm aware, is either using or hoping to use Burrito for some of the things that um, he was working toward. And he's been giving us a lot of valuable feedback and advice. And he's, he's even opened a couple, a couple of PRs on, on Burrito, and he's been, he's been very helpful. See, open source works. I'm looking forward to the eventual side effect of not having to compile Erlang every time I upgrade a Elixir 2, uh, hopefully. <laughs> I have compiled Erlang so many times, over, more so than I think I have in my entire life over the past couple months. Quinn, I heard that uh, since you have your M1 Mac now, that every time you open up Terminal, you just compile Erlang. Is that <laughs> How's that going for you? With Erlang, it works great. Erlang, <laughs> I can build in a couple minutes compared to the half hour or so it took before. Where the issue comes in is everything else. Uh, Haskell took me about a week to get working. <laughs> I'm very happy to be past that and just in a stable state now. <laughs> nice. So you mentioned this idea of collaborating with Voitech and sharing this open source. Are you looking for contributions? Are there any particular areas where people can jump in and help out? There's a lot of stuff that we have planned for the tool. The one thing I will say is that the larger refactor I mentioned a few moments ago with supporting custom ERTS builds is a fairly large internal change of the architecture. And so until that lands, things are in quite a bit of flux right now. But once we have that in place, there's a lot of quality of life improvements that we want to make in terms of just making it easier to manage these burrito installations and keep track of what is being installed, debugging what's happening, getting better examples in place of writing long-running apps and uh, more transactional CLI apps and so on. I think that there's a lot of room for improvement. I agree. Like Quinn said, there's a larger refactor coming in soon. We've been out of office for holidays and such, but that was about, I'd say, 90-ish percent complete before we took a break. So hopefully that'll be landing soon. Uh, And once that new rewrite is in, I would love to get any and all contributions to this. If we want to add examples, if you want to improve the documentation, eventually I do want to get this up on Hex as like an actual installable dependency through Mix. I think another thing that I really want to do is figuring out a way to get WX cross-compiled because that apparently just isn't enabled in the Erlang build toolchain. Uh, it just straight up turns off WX if you try to cross-compile. So there's some hurdles to get over there if we want to do things with like UIs with WX, like Elixir Desktop, I think, uses WX. But if we can get to the point where Burrito is building CLI tools and daemon tools and long-running processes and UI apps, then I think we have a really exciting future for Elixir as a language. And uh, it's one that I, I'm happy to be part of. I realize this is getting a little off topic, and I don't know if Digit wants to talk about it, but... One of Digit's side projects has actually been a DSL within Elixir for compiling that DSL to OpenGL shaders, essentially. And with WS support, there is no reason that you could not write OpenGL applications in Elixir using a DSL like that. You're like, oh, Elixir isn't usually meant for CLI tools. Making things do things that they're not supposed to be doing is my specialty, is is how I, I view my, my developer ethics. Um, I like using Elixir. I think it's, you know, Phoenix is amazing. And I think for web frameworks and everything, I think it's an amazing workflow. But I want to see Elixir being used for all sorts of things. Nerves is excellent. I love that project. I love that it's being used in Embedded. I want to see more CLI tools. I want to see more one-off scripts even. You know, I just want to see Elixir permeate all different fields. I really want to see that happen. I've been using it for, like Quinn said, OpenGL shader DSLs. I gave a talk at ElixirConf about writing a little game engine in it. 
I just want to see more fun use cases for elixirs. I think there's so many of them. And hopefully the goal that I instill burrito with is that it enables more of that because it's easier to get it to people. I think it's easy to fall into kind of a local maximum where you think that what we have is the best that we can have. But in a lot of cases, I think the limitations of Elixir and of Erlang in general have less to do with fundamental restrictions on the technology than being an artifact of the way that it's historically been used. For most of its life, Erlang has been used for deeply backend projects to build networking and telephony infrastructure. That doesn't mean it's the only thing it's good for. Someone just needs to put in the work to support other use cases. I totally agree. And I really appreciate the work that both of you have been putting into this and making open source. That is so cool. And I'm very excited to see where this goes, just what ideas people put this to use with and how it helps people approach and come into Elixir. Like I hadn't even seen the Ratatouille CLI multi-window interface. Like I've seen that before with N-curses and stuff like that. But yeah, seeing that with Elixir, wow, that's awesome. I love Ratatouille. Yeah, it's it's awesome. It, it was so much fun <laughs> to, to play with and, and make a little... We had our scanner engine have like a whole UI that you could list all the endpoints with. It was very fancy. It was great. But it's things like that. It's exactly what you're saying, Digit, where you're taking and pushing Elixir into areas where it wasn't originally said, this is a, the use case for it. It's not saying it could never be done. It's just saying it wasn't made for that. And I love that it's being pushed in directions and in ways that weren't originally envisioned because it just makes it better all around, makes it more accessible, makes it so, yeah, we can use the tool that we love in more places. We have such a good foundation here that we're building off of. The beam is a magical thing and I want more people to experience it. Well, if people want to follow the project or contribute or get in touch with either of you to talk more about this or anything else, maybe your presentations that you've previously given. Digit, I did attend your your talk as well at ElixirConf. Oh, wonderful. We're talking about the game engine thing. That was It was really fun to kind of see the little RPG with the fun artwork. It was, it was great. But yeah, where should people go to do that? In terms of Burrito itself, I think the GitHub repo is probably a good place to start. We are going to be putting more attention into pruning the issue backlog as the larger factors that are underway complete. I think that'll be a good place to discuss future additions and ways you can get involved. Outside of that, I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is at Wilton underscore Quinn. And anyone can feel free to tag me there, DM me, whatever. I'm always happy to talk about code. I'm on Twitter. I'm also on GitHub, uh, both under the same name, at D-O-A-W-O-O. Very cool. We will have links to all that in the show notes. And I am excited to be able to play with Burrito. So I also want to give a plug to Synopsys. If people that are listening to this are working in companies that say, yeah, we need a security audit or something done, should they be reaching out to Synopsys to help make that happen? Yeah, so Synopsys does a lot of different things. They, first off, sell the sorts of security analysis tools that we are building, but they also do a lot of pen testing and contracting work, particularly for larger enterprise companies. But if that's something that you're interested in, definitely reach out on their website. They have teams that specialize in basically every aspect of security you could possibly be interested in. Well, thank you both again. Appreciate it. Unfortunately, we have to wrap we could keep going. It would be it'd be fascinating to keep talking. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Mm-hmm.